this is the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast for the week of June 20th, 2021. This week's sermon, The Great White Throne Judgment. And now, here's Brother Stephen Beatty. The title, very simple. The Great White Throne Judgment. The only thing great about that throne is, I believe John was describing not only the massive size of it, but who was occupying that throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else underneath that, what we're going to talk about this morning, is anything but great. It's a story of years ago, a frontier town where a wagon was being pulled by a horse and one of the occupants was a little little boy parked along the side of the dirt road when all of a sudden the horse got scared and bolted off with no rider or driver, whatever you want to call them, except the, the little boy was still inside the carriage. He took off and at a distance, a younger man, a young man, seen the danger and knew that child was still on that wagon, bolted on its horse, took off to save this little boy in the wagon. Years later, this little boy that was rescued on that particular day became a ruthless, harsh criminal to the point where he found himself in front of a judge for a murder that he had committed. And as the criminal stood in front of the judge, he looked up and he noticed, he recognized the much older man, the judge. It was that young man who had saved him all those years earlier on that wagon. At that moment, he made his plea to the judge for mercy for the murder that he had committed many years earlier. But the judge suddenly stopped all those pleas by this harsh criminal with one sentence. He said, son, many years ago, I was your savior, but now today I am your judge and I sentence you to be hanged. More than 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to be our savior, didn't he? He lived a humiliating life. He died an agonizing death, an excruciating death so that he can provide forgiveness for our sins. The Bible says, though, one day Christ is coming back to this planet Earth, not to be the Savior of the world, but he's going to be the judge of all the world. And it's that second coming of Christ when he comes to judge all believers that we're going to look at today. And Gary has just been anticipating this message because there's a particular question and I could give you the answer right now. He tried to get it out of me in Sunday school, and I gave him a few breadcrumbs, and then I closed the bag shut, and he's going to have to wait till a little while more in this message and get the answers. But this judgment takes place in an event we often call the Great White Throne Judgment. If you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, Revelation chapter 20, or Daniel's going to have it on the screen. Quickly, let's do a quick overview where we're at in Bible prophecy. I lied to you. I said we've got two more messages. No. After today, we'll have two more in this study. So 
Right now, we're living in what church? The church age, okay? From Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, the birth of the church, until the rapture happens, which is imminent. It could happen before we leave these doors today. The rapture is imminent. Right now, we're in that gap between those two events. The church age, where we as Gentiles have the opportunity of God's ultimate plan of salvation. And the Jews right now have a partial hardening of their heart. But after the church is gone, he's going to turn his back toward attention to Israel to give them one last chance at salvation and to deal with all unbelievers, which leads to the great tribulation, that seven-year period of time under the tyrannical rule of the last three and a half years of Antichrist, powered by the dragon Satan and his lieutenant, the false prophet. And then at the end, that, that climactic battle of Armageddon, the war of Armageddon, if you will, leads to the second coming of Christ. Uh, we talked about last week or two weeks ago. And then at that second coming, after Christ returns to reclaim the earth, we go into the thousand-year reign of Christ, which was last Sunday. Now, in Revelation 19, the second coming, the beast, which is uh, Antichrist, and the false prophet, are thrown alive. Revelation 19, John says he saw them thrown alive, not annihilated. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone and, and, and sulfur. Then the judgments, Matthew 25, they have the judgments on the sheep and the goats because believers at that point will be separated from unbelievers, two in the field, one taken, one left, one's taken into judgment. All those that are left are invited into the thousand-year reign of Christ. You know, many will survive the Great Tribulation. There'll still be people alive, believers and unbelievers. That's where they are taken in judgment, unbelievers. And then the rule of Christ, thousand-year reign of Christ, takes place. And then during that thousand-year reign of Christ, we are with Christ. We're judging with Christ. We're judging the earth as well. The Bible says the 12 apostles and then many believing Jews will be judging as well. But however, John sees another group who are present during this millennial time. Look at Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over which the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of, and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This phrase, the first resurrection, it introduces a new concept. Now stick with me for a few moments here. The concept we have to understand is going to help us understand this in times. The concept of not one, but two resurrections. The Bible says we as Christians, when we die, our spirit immediately goes in the presence of Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be at present with the Lord. But what happens to our bodies? They're left in the grave, you know, to, uh, for the worms to have lunch on, whatever it might, whatever. You know, the bodies are going to decay. Well, that's what happens eventually, you know, but it doesn't matter. Our bodies are left. Our spirits, our souls, the essence of who we are, are in the presence of Christ. 
Non-believers are also, they're left in a grave, but their spirit goes to, as I discussed with Claire last Sunday, they go to a place called Hades, the temporary holding place for unbelievers. Now, both the bodies of Christians and non-Christians, they will be raised at a future time. Christians' bodies will be raised so we can experience everlasting blessings. Non-believers' bodies will be raised so they will experience everlasting judgment. Now, these are the two resurrections. First for eternal life, then the second death is the eternal. The second resurrection is the eternal death. And that's why John says, blessed is the one who has part in the first resurrection because over him the second death has no power. Now, let's, I want to look at both of these resurrections in more detail before we get to that big question Gary has for us. So the first resurrection is a resurrection of all Christians. And here's the concept that you have to understand, okay? The resur- the, you know, the first resurrection does not happen at all at the same time. It doesn't happen all at once, okay? It happens at four different times in history. Every Christian immediately goes into the presence of Christ when they die, but their body is raised at a particular time in history. And it's not the same for all believers. The best way to understand it is kind of like, uh, uh, I would say, a carpool, but also if you're in a city and you don't have a way of transportation, you take a bus to get from point A to point B. But usually, you're going to have multiple stops in between your final destination. You'll start with so many people at point A. Then you may go uh, six, seven blocks and pick up more people. And then you go on more people. And finally, they're all dumped out at this one location where that bus is supposed to go. You know, uh, think of this more as a heavenly uh, bus trip or a heavenly carpool, okay? Christians' bodies are picked up at different times in history to become glorified bodies. And where do we find this? We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the great resurrection chapter in the Bible. The first 19 verses, Paul describes the truth of Christ's resurrection. But did you know the church of Corinth, interestingly, they accepted the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, but they didn't believe that our bodies were going to be raised in the same way. But Paul corrects their understanding in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 15 and verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Okay. The Old Testament, remember, was built up a lot of agriculture, an agricultural community. And when it was time for the, to harvest the crops, they wouldn't go ahead and just harvest all the crop all at once. What would they do? They would take a sampling of it, a sampling. Okay. This sample would be brought to the priest as an offering. In Leviticus 23.10, they call it the offering of the first fruits. And this wasn't all the harvest. It was a sample of a greater harvest that was still yet to come. Paul is saying, you know, as magnificent as the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, it's not the whole story, okay? Jesus, he was saying, was the first of many who would be raised from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits. He was just a sample of a greater resurrection yet to come. Look at verses 22 and 23. He said, for as in Adam all die, but so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Here we are. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. 
Paul is saying, even though we're all going to be resurrected one day, just like Jesus was resurrected, we're all going to have to wait for our turn. How many of you like to, when you were kids, like to wait for your turn? None of us did. You know, well, we're, we're children of God. We're going to have to wait our turn. Some of us are, you know, okay? Now, notice in verse 23, the word order. That Greek word pagma, uh, P-A-G-M-A, refers to a military parade, okay? Uh, if we've never seen a military parade, imagine we have one down from one end of Broadway of town to the other end. And you have one portion of the military start out in the parade, and they head down the highway. The next, let's say the military, let's say the Army starts out, then the Marines come in next, and then the Air Force, the Navy. Eventually, that parade gets, gets so large and so large till it finally gets to its final destination. This is the word picture Paul is painting here for us. It's uh, a heavenly resurrection parade. And who is in this parade? Well, it tells you in verse 23, Christ is first. He's the first fruits. He's the leader of the parade, if you will. Ephesians 4.8 says it like this. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians, and he said, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to, gave gifts to men. Okay. It said, did you know Christ wasn't the only one that was raised during that time of his resurrection. Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, it talks about when Christ died that Friday afternoon, that some of the, the, some of the tombs were open, yet some people were actually raised from the dead. They didn't appear until after Christ had resurrected, but they had resurrected. Now, following the Lord Jesus Christ, notice the next group in this parade that will receive their resurrected bodies. Verse 23 again says, after that, those who are at Christ's at his coming, okay? Remember that word coming in Greek, parousia. It's used to describe both the rapture and the appearing of Christ at the end of the tribulation at his second coming. Well, which is it? Is it the rapture he's talking about or the second coming? He's talking about both again, okay? The next group to receive their resurrection bodies will be, guess who? It'll be you, it will be me. We're next in line at the rapture to receive our resurrection bodies. The rapture of the church. Now, the other group will receive their resurrection bodies at Christ's second coming. Now, this is the third group that received their resurrection bodies. Those who belong to Christ at his second coming. And who would that be? John talked about it in Revelation 20, verse 4. It's the souls of those who were martyred during the tribulation. There's going to be a great revival during the great tribulation. Unfortunately, vast majority of those people who turn their lives to Christ are going to pay a very heavy, heavy price. They're going to die. They're going to be beheaded for their faith. And those who refused to receive this mark of the beast. And immediately after death, they're in the presence of Jesus at that moment. And at his second coming, John saw the souls come to life, okay? Their resurrection bodies are received at the beginning of the millennium. And also, uh, Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12, he saw the Old Testament saints at that time receive their resurrected bodies during this time. But then there's a fourth group, okay, who will receive their resurrect resurrected bodies during this heavenly parade, if you will. And then, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom at the end of the millennium. And then this is the end of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, who are these people in this fourth group to receive their resurrected bodies? It will be these Christians who go into the millennium in their natural bodies. 
Now, we'll talk about that more in a moment. Hang on, Gary. Hang on tight, okay? Not every Christian will be martyred during the tribulation. Some are going to survive the tribulation. Many will, many will survive, and they'll enter the millennium into their natural bodies. They will give birth to other children during the millennium because we, we're going to be with them in the millennium. We're going to be in our, our resurrected, glorified bodies, but there will be no more marriage, no more procreation. But we're not going to be able to do that no more. There will be no more uh, need for pampers or wipes for you know whatever you had to have to take care of children. We all know that. We're not going to have that, but these natural body Christians in the, in the millennium are going to have children. Now, you know, these children will die during the millennium, and they, but they'll live much longer, you know, several hundred years potentially, but they will receive resurrected bodies at the end of the millennium. So now do you get the concept of, the, of this heavenly parade, if you will, that Christians will get their resurrected bodies at different portions in history, okay? The first resurrection doesn't happen all at once. It's a reference to all believers who will receive their resurrected bodies at various points. John says, blessed is the one who is not who is part of this military parade, the first resurrection, because over him the second death has absolutely no power. Now look at Revelation 20 and verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Who are the rest of the dead? Okay, it is the unsaved of those who died during the millennium. This leads to the second resurrection. Let's follow along with me. Verse, 20, uh, verse 13 of chapter 20 in Revelation. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Unlike the first resurrection, which occurs over a period of time, this second resurrection happens all at one time. It's not over a duration of time. It happens all at once. It happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the purpose is to raise all unbelievers so they can experience their final judgment we're talking about today, the great white throne judgment. Now, before the final judgment, one thing, one more thing has to occur. And he just, John describes it in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. Now, before we get into that, just a minute, Daniel, I'm sorry. The story of a man who was asleep one night, him and his wife sleeping so great, and all of a sudden he got, awo he got awoke by the sound of an of a irritable, irritating cricket. Have you ever heard that before? Cheep, 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 cheep. And no matter what you do, you can't block that out of your mind. Okay? He heard this sound, and he realized it's coming from inside the house, and more or less, it's coming from his attached bathroom. So what's he do? He gets up, he, he turns all that bathroom light on, gets all the fuzzies out of his eyes, and he notices that there's a, a fake plant in the bathtub, and it's starting to wiggle around. Aha, there's that cricket in there. So he gets in the bathtub, he reaches down, he grabs this cricket by the hind legs, he holds it up, and all of a sudden, he said, compassion come over him. He, he thought, you poor little cricket, you just can't help yourself from chirping in the middle of the night, waking me up from my slumber. And he thought, I'm just going to go let that cricket go. Do you really think he did that? 
No, he walked over and he, to the commode and he flushed it down to all eternity. He got rid of the cricket. Okay? For you cricket lovers out there, don't start crying, please. But that's what he did because he was disturbing his sleep. He had no mercy on this cricket. And that's why these next few verses in Revelation 27 through 9 are a little hard to understand. The Bible says at the beginning of the millennium, God grabs hold of Satan and he bounds him for a thousand years. Thousand years we have of perfect rule of Jesus Christ on the throne of David in the temple in Jerusalem, Satanless, okay? But what happens at the end of the thousand years? Okay, Daniel, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. All right. What is the purpose of Satan's release? Why does God choose to let Satan go at, after a thousand years of perfect Christ rule on this earth? It says that he might so that he can deceive the nations. In spite of the previous thousand years of perfect rule of Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, some people, here we go, Gary, is a minute. Some people at the final moment, when given the chance, will choose to defy God and be deceived by Satan. Of course, this brings up a number of questions, okay? Who are these people who decide, who have survived the millennium, that choose to follow Satan? Is it possible? Is it possible that you and I, after our life on this earth and God chose us for salvation, we lived a glory, we lived a Christ-like life, the best of our ability on this earth, we died and we are in the presence of Jesus and we enter into the millennium after a second coming, after a thousand years, at the very last moment, could you and I be deceived? Is it us? Now, why does it say that Satan must be released for a short time? to identify those who are deceived by Satan's release. Now, I want to make think, something very clear right now. I'm going to answer that first question. Could it be you and I? There is no way it is impossible for a genuine Christian to ever be deceived. We may fall from time to time. We're sinners saved by grace. But once we have been saved and we are genuinely saved, we are eternally saved. So the answer to that question is no, it is not Christians. It is impossible someone who's a genuine Christian to ever be lost. John 10, 28, what did he say? He said, and I, Jesus said, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So that answers that question. When God gives you eternal life, it's eternal. If salvation can be lost, it is not eternal. Hebrews says God is the author of eternal salvation. Romans eleven twenty nine says, the Paul says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's an irrevocable trust, isn't it? It cannot be reversed. God doesn't rescind his offer of eternal life. These people aren't genuine Christians who are deceived by Satan. But wait a minute. Okay, you said, I said earlier, only believers enter into the millennium. 
Those of us in our resurrected bodies and these who survived the Great Tribulation are the ones who go into the millennium. How will some be deceived if it's only Christians entering the millennium? It's because there will be Christians again who enter the millennium into their natural bodies. I'd say that a few minutes ago. And I believe it is the children, and it could be possibly grandchildren, children or grandchildren of these Christians who entered into the millennium are the ones who will some will be deceived. They will allow themselves to be deceived. The Bible teaches that during the millennium, there will be Christians with two different types of bodies. Us will be in our glorified, resurrected bodies, but also there will be Christians in the millennium in their natural bodies. Now, you may think that's the oddest thing. It's kind of weird if you think about it, you know, in a way, that we're going to be cohabitating during the millennial reign of Christ uh, with Christians in our natural bodies, um, existing with two different type of bodies. How can people possibly fellowship with one another? Well, think about it. It was very simple. Jesus did it, didn't he? After he resurrected in his 40 days on the earth, he fellowshiped with his disciples, didn't he? So if he can do it, we can do it too during the millennium. And there, he fellowship with disciples in their natural bodies. Now, this is the only explanation on how there can be both birth and death in the millennium. An example, Isaiah 65, 20. He says, no longer will there be an infant but who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought to be accursed. All right. Luke 20, verses 35 and 36 says, You and I are in our resurrected bodies. We won't be able to procreate. There'll be no more pampers, no more bottles, like I said. We won't be having children. The women are like, amen to that. You know, they'll be having no more children. Yet there will be infants in the millennium. They won't, they, uh, there will be no only be birth, but death in the millennium. We in our resurrected bodies, we won't die any longer. We don't experience our physical death on this earth. We won't die any longer. The only explanation that there there are Christians who enter the millennium in their natural bodies, and they will have children, and many will be deceived by Satan. Maybe that gives you some clarification there, okay? The fact is, this is why Satan has to be released. During the perfect rule of Christ, when this basically almost sinless, Throughout history, everyone's had to make a choice, haven't they? That's why Satan has to be released. We either had to choose to follow the kingdom of God or we follow Satan. If there is no Satan during the millennium, which there won't be, how can, the, how can them young people make a choice if there's only one option? God, God is a loving and just God. He has to release Satan so these people can make a choice for themselves. That's why Satan is released. The choice and, and, and rebellion won't last long, though, will it? Because Revelation 20, verse 9, God sends fire and devours those who have opposed him. And verse 10 says, God takes Satan and he throws him alive into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet, not where they were, but where they are. A thousand years earlier, these two occupied the lake of fire first, and they are still there being tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is the third occupant into the lake of fire. You're not destroyed, annihilated in the lake of fire. It's an internal torment. 
And this prepares the way for this specific event we're talking about, the great white throne virgin uh, uh, judgment. In, verse, in Revelation 20, verse 11, some people believe that there's only one judgment at the end of time, one for all. But the Bible doesn't teach this at all. There's a judgment for Christians that we're going to discuss next time, but there's also, that's called the judgment seat of Christ. But what we're talking about this morning is the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20 and verse 11 gives us that description. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. All right? John looks up, and he sees a single, solitary, white throne suspended in heaven and in space. At that point, heaven and earth, the, our present heaven and earth, had been destroyed by fire, fervent heat. It was gone. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, The present heaven and earth were reserved for judgment, and were destroyed by fire. Now between Satan being cast into the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment, this heaven and earth were completely destroyed. Then John sees something like he says, sitting on a great white throne. It's a, now it's different than the throne in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2 at the beginning of the tribulation where God sat on the throne surrounded by the church, the 24 elders, he saw that rainbow around that throne and peals of lightning and sounds of thunder. This picture is much different than that first throne in the beginning of Revelation. It's just a single throne with a different occupant sitting on it. And who's sitting on it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He come back as judge, didn't he? It's time for him to judge those who would not accept him. Look at Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13, the subject of Christ's judgment. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Remember, when an unbeliever dies, his body goes immediately to the grave and his spirit goes to Hades. It's a temporary waiting place. It's a horrible place, okay? Jesus talked about it in Luke 16. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man opened his eyes and found himself where? He found himself in Hades. Hades is the holding place for unbelievers until this final judgment, this great white throne judgment. And then John saw in verse 13 that Hades threw up all the dead since the beginning of time and so, so they could stand before this great white throne judge, judgment. The subject of this judgment are all unbelievers. Now, how are they judged and from what basis? Again, uh, verses 12 and 13 said, uh, that they were judged according to their deeds. What they thought, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Did you know that God keeps a set of uh, books on all of us? It's kind of scary, isn't it? He keeps a set of books on all of us. There is the book, and then there are the books, okay? What about this book? We know what that is. Revelation 13, 8 described it as the Lamb's Book of Life, a record of everyone who is saved, all right? Revelation 13 also says that this book was established and written before the foundation 
of the world. This book is finished. It's not like when a, a, a person comes to salvation, God gets out his, his heavenly sharpie and he writes down in the Lamb's Book of Life your name. That's not true. This book is completed. It is done already. No more names will be added to it. And how did God do that? And on what basis were these names written? Did God write down the names of people he knew would trust in Christ as Savior? Or did he write down the names of those he predetermined would accept Christ as Savior? The answer is the subject for another sermon, okay? I'm, I'm getting that today. So if you want all that answer, we'll get to that in one day, but not today. We're going to stick with what we're talking about this morning. The fact is this book has been composed. And unless your name is not found written in that Lamb's Book of Life, you will not escape the great white throne judgment. Now, there's the book, and then there are the books. God keeps a record of every person, believer, and unbeliever's works. Every word, every action, every motivation, every thought. At the edge of your seats, ain't you? God keeps a record of everything. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. The good and bad and ugly are all recorded in the books. No good deed goes unrecorded. No sin goes unnoticed. The Bible says the unsaved are judged according to the books, according to their deeds, the things written in the books. And the Bible says in verse 12, if anything's if any man's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, he was judged forever and ever. The unbeliever, listen to this, the unbeliever is the person who chooses to be judged for not having his name written in the book according to his works in the books. You know, one of the saddest parts of this judgment, think about this, as they are all copped up from Hades and, and all the unbelievers are sitting there waiting for their judgment you know, the saddest thing is the confidence, I believe, that they're going to have going into this judgment. You know, after the unbeliever uh, recovers from the initial shock of seeing Jesus Christ sitting on this great white throne, whom he rejected sitting on the great white throne, the unbeliever will start, I think, to be kind of confident. Even though they've been through some torture, they may think, you know, there is one last opportunity, you know, for me to make this thing right. And they're going to go in with a lot of confidence as they hear the basis on which they're going to be judged. Soon afterwards, though, I believe that confidence is going to quickly fade away. When they realize the standard by which their works are being judged will not be by their righteousness towards other people. It will be, towards, it will be the, by the perfection of God's own Son. And at that moment, their confidence is going to quickly fade away. Now, what happens at the result of the great white throne judgment? Verses 14 and 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You may think it, you just can't put your mind around it, you know. Somebody asked, how can a good and loving God do something like this to torture people forever and ever? How can a loving God do that? May I remind you of something? That the people who are thrown alive into the lake of fire are there by their own choice. They are there by their own choice. The unbeliever is the person who has said to God, whatever Jesus Christ did, it means nothing to me. They, they say, 
I don't need his death, and I certainly don't need his righteousness. I'm happy to be adjudged according to my own merit. And God says, okay, that's, that's what you want. That's exactly what I'll give you, what you want. You will, you will be judged according to your works. But nobody's works will be good enough, will they? You know, the Bible says, unless we have the righteousness equal to that of Jesus Christ, none of us are qualified for heaven. You may say, that's impossible. No one can meet that standard at all. The perfection of Jesus Christ. Nobody can do that. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody. None of us can meet that standard. That's why the only way we'll ever be qualified to enter into heaven is not based on our goodness, but on the goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, a quick illustration of two books. You have one book, imagine the life and times of Jesus Christ, his entire life, everything he has done in his ministry. And then over here, you'll have another book. Let's just say it's the life and times of, of one of the greatest evangelists in history, Billy Graham. Two separate books, the perfection of Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God. And over here, you'll have another book, the life and times of Billy Graham. A lot of great things he's done, but also the things that, Wrong motivations, wrong thoughts, being a sinful man, but saved by God's grace. Okay? Two years, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus hung on that cross, God looked down and saw, he saw my sin. He saw your sin. He judged Jesus for what we had done. It's the, to me, it's the greatest exchange ever taken place when we become a Christian. He said, I take my sinfulness, my righteousness, and I give it to Jesus who suffered for it once and once for all. Christ took our righteousness and he credits it to our account so we can spend eternity benefiting from the perfect life of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The most important choice we'll ever make in this life is what am I depending on to get into heaven one day? Am I going to depend on my righteousness because I'm a member of Pleasant View Baptist Church? Am I dependent on that? The fact that I got baptized, am I dependent on that? The fact that I grew up in church every Sunday, many people depend on that to get to heaven. Are we dependent on that? Or am I going to choose to depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the perfect life he lived? It's one or the other, folks. It cannot be both. And folks listening out there, that's so important. It cannot be both. That choice that you're depending on to get into heaven is a choice you have to make right now in your life because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. If you wait until you die, you've waited too long. There is no purgatory. There is no praying you out of suffering into salvation. There's no such thing as that. Once you take your last breath, it's over. You've either made the choice to follow Christ or you haven't. If you find yourself standing before that great white throne judgment, it's too late. None of us in here are not going to do that. We just, for our little children, we've got to pray that Jennifer and I will do the best for them to help lead them to faith to Christ so that they will not go and experience this great white throne judgment. All of our loved ones who are not saved, they will not escape judgment. We must choose the righteousness of Christ right now so we can escape this great white throne judgment. Let's bow together in prayer this morning. Not a great topic, this great white throne judgment. 
We're all going to be judged one day. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about Christians' judgment. But this Sunday was the great white throne judgment, a time you don't want to be a part of. If you have not accepted Christ and trusted in him as Savior, and you die today without making that decision, you will not escape this final judgment, the second death, this great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will be judged according to their deeds. You don't have to go through that. You don't want to be on the right side of history. You want to be on the right side of God this morning. If you're living a life of sin and you realize you need a Savior, you need Jesus, He's the only way, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. He said it because He meant it with every fiber in His being. You can make that decision this morning. If the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit is working on you, and you'll know it. We've all felt it in our lives before we committed our lives to Christ. If you realize you're in need of a Savior and the Holy Spirit is working on you and you want to spend eternity in eternal blessings for what Christ did for us instead of facing this horrible great white throne judgment condemnation where you'll be separated from God forever and ever. You can make this decision right now this morning. It's so easy a child could do it. If you needed Jesus in your life and you feel that conviction, you can pray this prayer with me silent in your heart. You can pray it out loud. You can follow along with me. A prayer sim similar to this. Dear God, thank you for loving me. And I know that I have sinned against you in so many ways. And God, I am truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I have heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. Not by anything that I, my good works, but by what Jesus and Jesus alone did for me, dying on the cross for my sins. I thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And I'm praying right now, God, that you will help me spend the rest of my life serving you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer and you really meant it with all of your heart, you are now a child of God. You're going to escape this great white throne judgment. You will spend eternity in heaven one day. Living the Christian life isn't easy. It Many times it makes things even harder because Satan is going to be on you, attacking you at every part of your life and your family, your loved ones around you. you got to be bold. you got to be strong. But when you become a follower of Christ, the first thing you're going to do is give a testimony. Tell people what Jesus did for you. Then get into a Bible-believing church. You've got to have the local church. Like-minded believers coming together. That's how we grow as Christians. When we're down, somebody's there to help lift us up whenever your family many times are not around because they don't like the new life you've chosen in Christ. You're only going to get into a Bible-believing church where they teach the whole counsel of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation and the maps. Teach it all. They don't cherry-pick anything. They don't try to sugarcoat anything to make it sound good to keep people in attendance. They tell the truth about what Christ done because we are sinful people and what sin does as done to this world. It is making it a broken broken world. But one day Christ is going to make it all right. We've been talking about it for several weeks now. You're going to want to get into a Bible-believing church like this one, Pleasant View Missionary Baptist. Our information is on our Facebook page. It's on our website, pbbaptistchurch.org. We welcome you here um, and any, any follower of Christ that's looking for a loving Bible-based church. If you can't get to this one, get into a Bible-believing church someplace else where you can grow as a Christian. Father God, this morning I pray 
with all my heart that anyone who has heard your call of salvation and the Holy Spirit has worked on them, that they will not resist your call to salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast. For more information about our church, including service times and videos of our latest sermons, visit our website at www.pvbaptistchurch.org.